And you are, great. Yes. All right. Hello, Chuladasa. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello, Boris. Yes. Or Bob. <laughs> it's good to see you all here. And uh, thank you for joining me today. And so, um, <clears throat> what I'm going to do is I'm going to first answer the questions that people have submitted since the last uh, Q&A that we did. And I'm going to answer the questions of those that are here first. And then second, I will uh, go to the leftover questions from the last Q&A, uh, answering uh, those, uh, answering the question from those people who are here. Uh, after that, I will answer the questions from people who haven't joined us today okay and then if we have very many questions left over what i'll do is i'll arrange to do a follow-up session sometime in the fairly near future so that we can kind of stay on top of things or try to at least make an attempt okay so thank you again for coming and thank you for your excellent questions i've been looking over them so, uh, first question is from David, David Carpenter, and, and you're here today, David. So, <clears throat> you say, I recently came across Daniel Ingram's writings on his experimentation with a fire casino practice. Then, in an interesting bit of synchronicity, a TMI mentor happened to mention Trataka practice, which is somewhat similar to what Ingram is talking about. Uh, using a candle flame to generate an inner image to support concentration practice. So, uh, we're getting some background from somebody. Anyway, so David is asking, could you comment on this sort of practice and say whether or not you see it as useful? Uh, specifically, could it be useful for one working on the TMI stages and if so, at what levels and in what way? And so, well, as a matter of fact, uh, when, uh, when Daniel started uh, playing around with Fire Casino, uh, I and several others uh, began doing the same. And so I've been experimenting with it a bit. And my primary reason for looking into it is to see if it has something valuable to offer that could be um, uh, incorporated into um, uh, into the scheme of practice that we teach. Now, um, let me just look. I'm going to go back and look at the way you worded the last part of it. Could it be useful for one working on the TMI stages? And if so, at what level and in what way? So, um, the relationship between these two is that TMI is, provides a general framework, which I believe is applicable to uh, a greater or lesser degree, and in most cases, a greater degree, to any of the other more specifically, more specific practices that are out there. So it is both a specific practice based on a particular meditation object, but it is all also a general framework uh, to which other practices could be, uh, could, could make use of and could help, and I think it has helped many people to make sense of other practices and to use other practices more effectively. So now, those of us who have uh, 
being inspired by uh, Daniel Ingram to look at this further, are looking specifically to see what this practice might have to offer and the pros and cons of it. Now, the, the fire casino, interestingly enough, um, you know, well, it, it comes from the Vasudhi Marga, and it's part of a, a section, on the, the first volume of the Vasudhi Marga is uh, uh, mostly about concentration practices. And uh, this, it's part of a section on jhanas. And the fire casino is, in fact, the last of all the casino practices it's described. And the least detail is given for it. Um, mostly it refers to the description of earlier casino practices like the Earth Casino, things like that. So, um, so we started researching this, trying to find out, uh, to do this practice and see what it has to offer. What it involves is looking at a candle flame until you've completely depleted the uh, 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 photosensitive pigments in the central, in the fovea centralis of, of the retina of your eye. This, this is where there's the greatest density of uh, photoreceptors and where, where the vast majority of your color photoreceptors are um, located. Now, if you look at a candle flame long enough, uh, all of the visual pigments are broken down. In other words, the enzymes can't resynthesize them as rapidly as they're being broken down uh, to generate the image of the flame. So after staring for a while, you close your eyes and you'll see an after image. You're all familiar with after images. The after image arises, and then there's various things you can do with that after image. Eventually, as the uh, pigments are all resynthesized in the retina, uh, there's no longer any information, useful information coming from the retina. And now what you see is information is generated in, in the visual cortex. This is my interpretation of what's happening. And um, traditionally, this was used as a uh, uh, meditation object for entering jhana. So we played around with it, and we're trying to find out. There's a lot of interesting and fun things about it. But the question is, does it, it, does it have any particular value beyond being a lot of fun and producing some very interesting effects. Well, so far, uh, except for a uh, retreat that was done just this last weekend in Vermont involving 13 people, there were a few uh, relatively inexperienced meditators there. So far, everybody that's done this has been long-term, well-established meditators. And it's very hard to interpret the effect of this meditation technique and its relative value until we get some data from people who are relatively inexperienced. But the thing that struck, or that strikes us all is how easy it is to keep your attention focused on a candle flame. It's not surprising. I mean, think about you sit, you sit in front of a fireplace, or you sit around a campfire, or anywhere where there's a flame. We seem to be spontaneously drawn to that. It's very, very easy to, to keep your attention focused on a flame. Um, it's hard for me to know how much of that, how much that easiness is affected by all my years of other practice, right? But there's a possibility that somebody who hasn't much experience, hasn't had much experience in in uh, stable attention, could uh, achieve a much greater stability of attention using the candle flame. Now that might sound like okay, that's a pro, but I look at it and I say, well, now wait a minute. We've gone through a whole lot of things with a whole lot of people. They try to focus on the breath, and then they look for something easier, something easier to pay attention to. And the fact is, the point of, uh, of training yourself to stabilize your attention is so that your attention follows your intention, no matter what inherent interest the, the object of attention has or does not have. I mean, you can't do any of the practices from stage eight on, any of the adept, adept practices, unless your attention does what you intend to do to do and nothing else. And you can't do that reliant on a, an object that is particularly attractive. Um, but there are some other things as you get further along. Uh, when you get to the stage where there's a murkiness, 
that develops when the after image disappears, very often what appears is something that is similar to the luminous phenomenon, what is often referred to uh, uh, or misreferred to as the nimitta, uh, uh, seems to spontaneously appear. And if the person directs their attention to it, it becomes very expansive. So whether or not this particular practice has any value other than being very entertaining, um, we're waiting to find out. We're doing more research on it. Um, if I'm well enough, we're planning to do a relatively intensive retreat month long in uh, Canada uh, in October to explore this more fully. But at this point in time, um, I don't know whether this is a tool or a toy. And, you know, um, Daniel's approach to things is very different than mine. Um, I'm much more interested in tools than toys. And uh, uh, to say the least, Daniel has uh, much more interest in toys than I do. So we, we shall see. Sure. Daniel likes to have fun. Yes, go ahead. Could I ask you to, um, there's a little uh, control to the right of your mute button. And if you could like select the built-in microphone, um, it might improve the audio quality a bit. Oh, is my auto audio audio okay? Built built-in microphone is selected. Oh. Uh, uh, built-in output headphones is selected. So, uh, I wonder if it's the location of my uh, speaker. I'm now using earbuds. Um, uh, it's probably Does the microphone in your no. It's probably the microphone in your earbuds. The problem is that it's much much too loud, and so it's oh. massively. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, I know there's a way to turn it down, um, but I'm not totally sure what that way is. Yeah, I'm not sure how to fix it. If, if the if it's if it thinks that it's using your your built-in microphone, um, it may not be fixable. Is there another microphone option? Uh. Chuladasa, when you look at the audio options, do you have a different option for microphone? Um, which audio options are you referring to? Next to the <laughs> mute button. Okay, there. Um, there's an option to leave computer audio. Would that be something I should check? No, no I was no, just no. wondering if there was something under select a microphone that might work other than what you're using. Okay, that was obviously not the right one to press. I have, uh, but under the under the red button, leave computer audio. You have uh, the link test computer mic and speakers, and then you can adjust the volume of microphone. Oh, oh thank you. Okay, let, let me try that. Uh, audio option. Just one person. I'm not having any problem hearing you, Chuladas, and it's very clear. Oh, it's definitely clipping from where I am. It's not as clear as it could be. But but we can make do in a pinch. <laughs> could, could I ask you? Okay. I have, uh, I've lowered the volume of that to about three quarters. Is that an improvement? That's a big improvement. Yeah, thank you. Okay, great. I didn't realize that that was possible. <laughs> okay, so you had a question. Me? Okay, yes. I had a question. Yes, this yes. is Katya Yan here. Hi, it's lovely to see you again. And, um, you know, I'm reading The Master in the Mystery, and I just read the essay, The Divided Brain, by Ian McGilchrist. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting what you said at the very end of uh, this discussion of um, attention and, uh, you know, the toys and process and the manipulation of the world and how left hemisphere this is. And what you said is, oh, no, I'm not really interested in all the other stuff, which is much more of the right hemisphere interest, you know. So um, I have found this a very, very powerful practice now of the... Um, <clears throat> uh, meditation, choiceless awareness meditation, which I think you call it. Um, and 
it's in your book so beautifully described that delineation of the uh, region, of the zone of mindfulness, when we begin to explore the connection between the focal awareness, uh, focused attention, and peripheral awareness. Mm-hmm. And I just had a, is this unification in the center that you describe in your book? And it's so powerful. Um, will that be a part of the exploration of your, or of the retreat that you'll be doing? Yes, it, it most definitely is. It was also part of the um, retreat that was done last weekend. Um, I specifically asked people to um, to use attention in various ways um, in in the different uh, stages and to uh, stages in the in the, the three parts to the practice: the the eyes open the eyes closed after image and the eyes closed mert. And I also asked them to, uh, to make sure that they sustained uh, as high a level of peripheral awareness as they could during that. So yes, this is very much a part of what we're looking at in this. Yes. So I did this, fl- the um, flame meditation, I've been doing it very regularly for years, but just recently, and it's so beautiful what you just described because my, as I, as I looked and looked and looked, the, the images would split so that the right and left, you know, visual fields were giving me, or the right and left eyes were giving me the two images, etc. But as I looked more and as I let go and let go and let go, suddenly there was a very clear center and almost like a Buddha-like luminescence and then the surrounding, kind of like the peripheral awareness. Again, exactly, mm-hmm. in many ways, what you just, you know, what we were talking about, this mm-hmm connection it was a very beautiful and powerful special experience but yes. i didn't close my eyes yes if that's one of the things that's fascinating about this is uh, uh from the point of view of a physiologist i'm very interested in the different levels of the visual visual process that are involved first is the retina uh, and then there, there are several stages of visual processing between that and what arises in consciousness. And uh, it is uh, at these various levels that you have the uh, input involvement of both the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. And so uh, on the positive side, this could, uh, where this could turn out to be an extremely valuable practice is where it would give a meditator the ability to explore these in uh, in more productive ways that they could that would carry over to uh, ultimately carry over to the way they use mindfulness in their daily life. So the potential for this is is very great, um, but we won't know until we collect enough information and get enough experience with it. It'd be lovely to spend some more time talking with someone like you who's been doing this for years because uh, uh, I, I'm sure there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of experiences you've had with it that uh, I haven't had enough time to have yet. So, I look forward to it. Yes. Could I just add one sort of a bit addendum to my question? Yes, please. Um, part of what was behind my question was sort of noticing in my own experience that sometimes visual objects are mm-hmm. much easier <clears throat> to focus on than the tactile sensations of the yes. breath. Yes. And um and so that's a common experience. Mm-hmm. And and basically what you're saying is that's not necessarily an advantage. That's not that's right. That's not necessarily an advantage. Vision is the dominant sense. You know, and mm-hmm. it's uh, uh it occupies much more cerebral tissue than any of the other senses do. Uh, even though the body is much larger. So uh, it's, hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, yes, this is a fascinating area of exploration. So I'm going to go on to the next step, uh, question here. Is, uh, is Adam Malinowski with us today? Doesn't look like it. It does not. You're right. Okay. Well, we'll come back to that question then. Um, Kevin Smith, are you here? Yes, I'm here. Oh, okay, great. Okay, 
So I read that you practiced TM and Advaita Vedanta prior to taking up Buddhism. Is there anything you retained from either that you found beneficial to you on the path that you'd like to share? What are your thoughts in general on supplemental meditative practices outside of our regular TMI practice? Okay, there's two different questions here. We'll take them one at a time. <clears throat> um, almost tongue-in-cheek here. Uh, I tried practicing Advaita Vedanta from uh, books only. I had no teacher at all. There were books I got from the uh, Vivekananda Vedanta Society in uh, Chicago. And I had uh, a friend, a fellow graduate student, and uh, we worked on these together. And uh, um, one of the biggest conclusions that I came from, from spending almost two years trying to, to get somewhere with this practice, is that a, a practice with um, very little in the way of detailed uh, instruction is extremely hard to uh, achieve any progress with. <laughs> and uh, the main thing I got from TM was a practice that involved very detailed instruction was very easy to make progress with. So, um, but uh, beyond that, um, I, I think that my experience with TMI did help to plant uh, some of the seeds for recognizing uh, the um, inevitability of, uh, of the presence of awareness. Uh, because you can reach very highly focused states using TM where awareness disappears. And I think this was sort of a uh, semi-conscious or perhaps even unconscious observation that I had during, the, during my TM experience that uh, later came to fruition uh, uh, when, I was, when I was doing serious meditation years later and had, uh, had access to further information. Uh, I would just comment that the Advaita Vedanta is probably the closest uh, of all the uh, non-Buddhist um, uh, Asian practices, well, uh, maybe worldwide, uh, the, uh, it is the closest non-Buddhist uh, practice to, to uh, Buddhism that I find. What it lacks is um, that sort of uh, very systematic approach. And that is the, the one thing, you know, uh, what I like best about the uh, Buddhist practice, both the, uh, in terms of Dharma and in terms of meditation, is that it is systematic, it is detailed, and it is, um, um, at least in the best of inst uh, instances, it's uh, directly comprehensible and applicable. Now, uh, I'd like to think that TMI is sort of the epitome of that aspect of, uh, of Buddhist practice. Second question that you asked, Kevin, are what are my thoughts on supplemental meditative practices outside of regular TMI practice? Well, TMI incorporates uh, a number of practices drawn from other sources uh, quite deliberately and with a lot of thought. Um, but I, yes, I would encourage you to explore other practices and uh, uh, to, uh, as I say, I think you can use TMI as a framework to explore other practices and see what aspects of that framework apply most specifically to those other practices. They will, that will um, enhance your understanding of the 10 steps that I have described, and it will also allow you to be more successful in those other practices when you do undertake them. Uh, for example, students who have, uh, uh, students of TMI uh, who uh, go to uh, Paak or one of his teachers, uh, find that they, they are very successful very rapidly as opposed to most people who have not. Uh, I mean, I, I think uh, Paak himself says that only a few out of every thousand that undertake this truly, um, truly master it. And um, I, I, I think if you if you practice TMI and then you were go, would uh, go to 
uh, do a retreat with Shayla Catherine or uh, Tina Rasmussen and Gary Snyder, or not Gary Snyder, Stephen Snyder, or one of the other teachers trained by Pawak, that you would find that you would, you would have much greater success uh, than those who haven't. Um, and in, in, in general, I would encourage, for example, if you have never had any experience with um, the uh, uh, Mahasi style noting practice, um, I wouldn't bother with it until you were at least stage four. Um, but if you were stage six and you undertook the Mahasi noting practice, you'd uh, be at the stage of, uh, uh, you'd find yourself at the stage at, uh, uh, the um, uh, knowledge of arising and passing away very quickly. Likewise, um, if you are uh, uh, beyond stage seven and you take up that practice, you'll find that you frustrate your teachers enormously because of the arising of joy and PT, and they will, uh, you know, they'll they'll treat you as though you're doing something wrong because that shouldn't happen. That uh, joy is one of the uh, uh, defilements of insight, and uh, um, you can't help it if you've been doing a TMI practice. But anyway, you'll learn a lot by by using supplemental practices. So I do encourage that. Is there anything further that you'd like to ask about that? No, that's great. Thank you. All right, Boris, you're here, or Bob. Um, is it allowed to apply a technique of a higher stage in order to achieve the goals of a lower one? I was able to experience uniform PT when I was working on stage four. Very quickly, I realized that by applying my attention to these subtle sensations, I get rid of all perceived distractions and dullness. My sessions are joyful and my daily life is more mindful. Basically, it was very similar to experiencing the whole body with the breath. I was surely heading toward stage five, but then I asked a question on Reddit to get validation from more experienced practitioners and was strongly discouraged from doing this technique on stage four. So I stopped and then was slowed down in my progress and lost a couple of extra months. I am sure I had to trust my intuition and to keep working with subtle sensations as my meditation object to overcome gross distractions, keeping in mind that I would need to return to the sensations in my nostrils later on. Um, now I am doing stage five practices again, and I see that working with the whole body allows me to overcome subtle dullness, yes, and getting more mental power better than by doing the body scan. That um, would it be advisable to use the whole body breath to overcome subtle dullness and only then spend some time doing body scan in order to learn to define the scope of attention at will? Well, these are two actually they may seem like similar questions. They're both uh, referring to using a more advanced practice um, at an earlier stage, but they aren't. But the answers are extremely different. They aren't as as the same as much the same as uh, they may appear. The advice you got online was good because you see you have to train your mind in such a way that. Um, uh, First, gross distractions are overcome through a develop of a, a unified intention to uh, uh, become aware of and to correct for distractions that are passing from being subtle distractions to being gross distractions. When you find a way to bypass it, that training doesn't occur, and you are going to find yourself deficient in that ability later on. And at that point, you will find yourself going back and having to do those kinds of stage four practices without uh, the benefit of the shortcut in order to fully develop those particular skills. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, yes, you, yeah, you can do something that will make uh, uh, gross and subtle distractions go away, but if you haven't trained your mind to overcome them, uh, in the proper way, then, you know, it's like, uh, to use an analogy, uh, it, you find it's easier to take a bicycle to the, to the store than it is to walk. But, uh, you know, <laughs> um, well, maybe that's not a good analogy. Anyway, you can find, you can find shortcuts, but the shortcut won't, won't serve the same purpose 
okay, so I'm glad you, I'm glad that makes sense to you. Um, so by going back to stage four, and you say you lost a couple of extra months, maybe not. Maybe what you did was actually develop a skill that has carried, has, has, uh, you're seeing the benefits of as you move forward. Now, when we look at this, the second part of your question about um, doing the body scanning uh, as per stage five and doing the whole body breath as per stage six, you can see that these are extensions of each other. And um, certainly, the, the important thing to keep in mind is that at stage five, the purpose of the practice is to increase the uh, conscious power of your mind. And the purpose of the practice in stage six is to develop exclusive attention. Uh, the, the practice as, as a whole is looking for breath-related sensations, being able to hold larger areas of the body, increase your scope of attention to hold larger uh, areas of the body at one time. Um, and both of these help to increase conscious power. Uh, as you go along, if you're successful in finding sensations that change with the breath, which by the way, at stage five, it doesn't really matter whether you do or not, as long as looking for them produces the desired result of greater conscious power. But uh, if you were fortunate enough that during your stage five practice, before you get to stage six, you not only find uh, breath-related sensations in every part of your body, but you also find that you're able to expand the scope of your attention to include all of those. Well, that's that's wonderful. It's still it's still serving the same purpose at stage five, stage five, and it will still serve the same purpose at stage six. As a matter of fact, I would not at all be surprised if you didn't find that. Um, that doing stage five, six practices that you were, in a sense, already there. It, it took you, it was very easy. You could very quickly do them, uh, that you could do the uh, whole body jhanas and things like this. And just to go back to the earlier part of the question, some of that ability uh, probably came from the time you spent at stage four doing the stage five practices. Um, but uh, and so you you still got the benefit of doing that even though you still had to go back and learn to overcome gross distraction and uh, then at stage six you'll have no problem overcoming uh, subtle distractions does that make sense to you and do you have any further inquiries on that yeah absolutely thank you very much yes all right uh, Nathan Becker, let's see, are you here, Nathan? Yes, you are, yes. I see. Okay. How do right effort and equanimity fit together? Equanimity is total surrender to what is, or as, as you often formulate it, let it come, let it be, let it go. Uh, this is a process of releasing and seems conducive to fourth path's goal of total uprooting of tana. Uh, right effort, on the other hand, is to eliminate and maintain the elimination of unwholesome mental states, and then to cultivate and maintain positive mental states. Uh, this is an active process of changing the way things are. This practice feels antithetical to the uprooting of tanha, because it's so easy to be averse to negativity and attached to the positivity when actively transforming these mental states. Um, there's a lot of parts to this. Okay, and um, equanimity, it's true, as you say, that equanimity is involves a total surrender to what is but that is a description more of how before we have the true equanimity that comes with either uh, insight or samatha 
that is how we achieve a degree of equanimity. Uh, um, the total surrender itself, that letting it go, letting it go and letting it be, is something that um, we use in order to develop a degree of equanimity, an increasing degree of equanimity uh, when confronted by various things. And what, what the true equanimity, the upeka or upeksha, uh, that is associated with insight and uh, samatha, uh, that equanimity is best described as a non-reactivity to what arises. In other words, there is neither desire nor aversion arises in response to these things. So it's qualitatively the same as the practice of surrender, yet there is nothing to be surrendered because there is no arising of either desire or aversion. Does that make sense? So uh, now this, this is going to help us to understand why uh, effort and, and equanimity are not uh, at all in conflict with each other or contradictory practices. Okay. Now, surrender and true equanimity are slightly different things. One is a way of inducing uh, equanimity that is not so deeply rooted that uh, it, it that craving ceases to arise in either of its forms. But true equanimity, there is a cessation of uh, the, the cessation of desire and aversion. Um, now, this may not be total. Don't get me wrong in this. I'm not talking about total equanimity. But to the degree that you have true equanimity, something arises and there is neither aversion nor desire in response to it. Okay? And uh, the uh, now total equanimity is where you're, you, uh, is what you talk about fourth path's goal of total uprooting of tana. That's, yes, that, that's, the, that's the kind of equanimity we're talking about there. Right effort is to eliminate and maintain the elimination of unwholesome mental states and then to cultivate and maintain positive mental states. Now this, when I saw it, brought a little confusion and I'd like you to clarify. Are you talking, in terms of the Eightfold Path, right effort? Uh, by right effort, do you mean the third element of the Eightfold Path, or do you mean the uh, sixth the element? Sixth. You mean the sixth. Okay, what you have described here is the third, really. Uh, right, right thought or right intention. And this is where you actually choose to replace... Uh, um, unwholesome thoughts and intentions with wholesome thoughts and intentions. Um, so this is a minor point. So, uh, so we'll, we'll, having said that, we'll skip that. But this active process, now this is not incompatible with equanimity. Equanimity means that you're not reacting to what is with either aversion uh, nor desire. However, you can very clearly see and understand. You do not need desire and aversion to see that a situation could be better than it is, could be more wholesome, could be uh, induce, in, in, inducing less suffering in the world, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, now, if, if you, if for a simpler organism than a human being, um, desire and aversion are really the only way that they have of knowing that there's that there's either something worth pursuing because it's of value or, or something that needs to be uh, either destroyed or escaped escape from right so that's why that's why those emotions that's why craving exists it evolved a long time ago but now we have minds that we don't need to rely on craving and so that's why we can afford to overcome it but what good would a Buddha be who just accepted everything as it was? He certainly wouldn't go out and teach. He certainly wouldn't go to all the trouble that the historical Buddha went to. Um, so what is going on here? Here's somebody trying to make change in the world who is devoting his life 
and and uh, activities in many forms. So this what these two are not in a contradiction at all. That um, um, if you have true equanimity, then you can still see that something useful and valuable could be done. And you can do that. And you can do that without the emotional confusion that is produced by desire and aversion, which means that you can do that much more effectively. And uh, there is just, uh, it's, the thing is to, it's, to do the things that you can do but to do them from a place of acceptance you start from okay it is what it is there is no emotional reactivity there is a clear mind then let me see if i can improve the situation then you make an attempt to improve upon it now you come into a new present in that new present moment you accept things totally as they are what you did was either successful or was not successful if it was not successful, you might try again. Or you might realize that, okay, this is beyond my ability to change. Therefore, you accept it. The, the equanimity is already there. You don't react to the fact that it didn't work. If it did work, then you look at it and say, yes, but this situation could be made still more satisfactory if I did this further act. And then you go ahead and do it. Or conversely, you could say, okay, this is as good as it gets, and so I'll accept it for what it is, at least for the time being, until there's the opportunity to do something better. Now, does this make sense, just as I've described it, and now I'll apply it to what happens in, in practice? Yes, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. I really appreciated the distinction between the non-reactivity and, you know, perfect equanimity and, and the, just the cultivation of it before you really right. get there. That was very helpful. The one question yeah. I still have is, uh, I guess, uh, cultivation of joy intersecting with equanimity. It, just, it sounds mm -hmm. like, um, would you cultivate okay. joy in an equanimous state just because it's more satisfying to be joyful? But let it, if the joy... Yes. As a matter of fact, that, that is exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens in the jhana practice. The only reason people ever move on from the first and second jhanas to the third jhana is that what was once so pleasing and exciting and happy-making becomes unsatisfactory. And in truth, the only reason that someone moves from third jhana to fourth jhana is that even the sukha is pointing towards something that is even more sublimely satisfactory uh, than, than the pleasure that, uh, that characterizes that jhana. The same thing is true in, uh, the, uh, uh, in every other aspect of the development. One of the things, one of the things that, uh, I don't know if anybody still does this, I hope not, um, is that uh, they make claims, you know, uh, t teachers who are teaching uh, things like uh, uh, Vipassana practices will say, uh, don't, uh, don't pursue the, the jhanas, don't pursue samatha, uh, don't do practices that bring about states of joy and happiness because you'll get addicted to them. Nobody ever does. You, you might for a while, you might get stuck there for a while, but eventually the, the fact is that the joy of piti uh, is not ultimately as, as satisfactory as when the mental state of PT has matured into tranquility, right? And even that state of tranquility where there is still the subtle arising and passing away of, of uh, uh, positive, uh, primarily positive, but also some negative mental states, but they're, they're very mildly so. Even that becomes unsatisfactory, and the mind naturally is drawn towards equanimity. So, so it, it, what, what we're really talking about here is as the mind dwells in, explores, and discovers each of these states, uh, it comes to recognize 
eventually that there is something yet more sublime and satisfying uh, that it has not achieved. Um, the Buddha discusses this in the Sunyata Suttas. There's, uh, and uh, you, you might like to have a look at that. Okay, great. That answered my question. Thank you so much. Okay, really glad. Is a, let's see, what's in the second part? Is that what we already answered in the second part there? Uh, I can, well, if you want to work through that, that's just an example, but you don't have to. And that was a lot of time. Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, yes, if you find yourself, if you find narcissistic thoughts arising, then um, the, uh, I, I didn't go on earlier to explain uh, how in practice you use the combination of surrender and thought replacement to, uh, to overcome these tendencies, but this is exactly the place to do it. The important thing to do when narcissistic thoughts arise is you do not crush them. You do not drive them away. You do not confront them with aversion of any sort. You accept them. You accept them, but you dissociate from them. So uh, there, is a, there is a narcissistic thought arising. Now, is there, is there a non-narcissistic, is there a more wholesome thought that uh, is uh, incipient in this situation or this mental state that I'm in that I can bring to the fore. And then you do so. So this is exactly the thought replacement practice that the Buddha described when he said, and I realized I have two kinds of thoughts. And when I'm having an unwholesome thought uh, that uh, I can find a wholesome thought to replace that. But you don't do this from a place of, of, of crushing or escaping or, or uh, denying or experiencing aversion to the unwholesome thought. You do this from a place of accepting that, ah, this is as a result of causes and conditions, my mind is prone to do this. But my mind also has other uh, predispositions also due to causes and conditions, in particular my practice of the Dharma. Therefore, I shall in this moment try to evoke those more wholesome uh, aspects of my personal conditioning. Awesome. Thank you so much. What, what is the sutta that the Buddha talks about thought replacement? And probably several, but if you can think of one. <laughs> um, I, I, I can't. I, I, one of the things that's happening to me between uh, uh, chemotherapy and age is that uh, my memory is just totally shot. Uh, so there's some suttas I remember the titles of and others that I don't. Um, probably if you Googled thought replacement Buddhism or thought replacement Google uh, or, or uh, what was I going to say thought, thought replacement uh, Dharma or Eightfold Path or Right Effort or something like that you'll come up with it okay great thank you very much okay Dominic is Dominic with us today yes I'm here hello hey hi Dominic welcome welcome glad to see you okay you ask in the last Q&A you said that there really is no hard problem of consciousness. It was mentioned in the context of Nagel's uh, How's It Like to Be a Vet? You indicated that consciousness acts as inf information exchange and has a reflexive quality related to memory and that those facts somehow explain the subjective element understood by me as having qualia or not being a zombie. Well, yes. Um, so in this context, I'd like to ask you to elaborate why do you think that those functional aspects of the mind, information exchange, reflexive quality, solve the hard problem of consciousness? And particularly, is your reasoning in this area based on intellectual? If so, is it philosophical or scientific understanding? Or rather, you base your position on the insight you had into the ultimate nature of the mind? Well, I will answer the last part first. Um, it's uh, due to insight, but then when I examined it uh, using my uh, left brain, I found that it uh, uh, 
was totally explainable and quite clearly so. And so uh, it can be explained philosophically and scientifically. Now let's go back to the first part. You indicated that consciousness acts as information exchange. No, I didn't say that. I said con consciousness is information exchange. That, but uh, what we use the word consciousness to describe is something that we experience. And if we analyze it and we say, well, what is it about uh, this information exchange that m makes it seem so special to us, the answer is the subjectivity that's associated with it, that subjective element. So information exchange is happening everywhere, at every level in the universe. A hydrogen atom, its, its electron and its proton are exchanging information continuously. Information exchange is having a thermostat is exchanging information with the environment and with the uh, with the other components of the furnace or air conditioner that it controls or, or the, the the heating and cooling elements that it controls information exchange pervades the universe what we call consciousness is at particular an instance of information exchange that is happening at the highest level of our minds and were it not for the memory element, it would not be reflexive, okay? But on the other hand, with that didn't have a memory element, it probably wouldn't exist because it would be completely useless. A really complex uh, information processing device that doesn't have some way to store information over time for various lengths of period of, of time, it can be very short term, short term, long term. But the more complex the information exchange process is taking place, the more absolutely essential some form of memory becomes, some form of information storage becomes. To process information, information arises and passes away instantaneously. You have to store it. To, to do anything with it. So when information is exchanged, when it passes from one entity to another, if it can't be stored, then it's, it, it can't really be integrated in an effective way with uh, other information. Does that make sense to you? It's, it's just kind of a natural necessity. If you, if you see the universe as, as at least partly constituted by a universal process of information exchange that makes everything happen the way it does, then you can see as information exchange becomes more complex, there needs to be information storage. And that actually happens at all kinds of levels. You know, when two rocks collide with each other and a chip breaks off of one of them, that's information storage, right? But we're talking about a really sophisticated kind of information storage that's taking place in the human mind. And that is what gives rise to our experience of subjectivity. That is why I say there's no hard problem. It's, um, you know, if uh, there is a very sophisticated, complex level of information exchange going on um, in, our, in our minds, okay? And uh, a lot of that information is being stored at, at many different levels, very short term, very, very short term, medium term, long term, so on and so forth. So how does a bat know what it's like to feel, to be a bat? Why is there something that it is like to be a bat? It's because one part of the information that the bat's mind is working with is the, is, is the reflexivity that arises out of accessing information uh, about uh, an instant ago, a minute ago, an hour ago, and uh, I don't know what the lifespan of a bat is, but a month ago or months ago. Do you see? The same thing with us. If we didn't have even short-term memory, if we had no memory at all, would we have a subject, would there be a subjective experience? I mean, there's people with, I mean, one of the things that, uh, that, uh, people who focus on the idea of a hard problem ignore is there are people with certain kinds of brain damage that they can't form um, 
anything other than very short-term memories. So you could have a conversation with that. You, you could walk into the room, introduce yourself, shake that person's hand, and have a conversation. He has enough memory that he can remember what you said, and there would be a continuity to the conversation. You could walk out of the room, close the door, immediately reopen the door and walk into the room, introduce yourself once again, and it wouldn't matter whether you introduced yourself using the same name or a different one, but it would be a whole brand new ball game for that person. Can you imagine if you take away, I, I mean, it's hard to know what to what degree that person has subjectivity, but I expect they have a sense of, of uh, yes, I, I, I know what I'm doing. I'm standing here talking to you because that's something that is within the realm of their uh, reflexive activity of their mind. But if they didn't have that, what would be the difference between being when that and being in a coma? Um, so at least, at least from the point of view of subjectivity. So that's why I say this. I, I, and I'm not out to convince anybody of this, but in terms of your latter question, it's, yes, it comes immediately from experience, uh, but uh, upon, upon reflection, it makes total sense and the whole hard problem dissolves. Um, from a philosophical point of view, I'm not the only one that's saying this. Um, there are a lot of philosophers who are, there's two sides to this argument. The pro-Chalmers, uh, uh, and uh, Chalmers is a hard, hard problem guy. There's the pro-Chalmers crowd, and there's the anti-Chalmers crowd, uh, which, and both crowds come in different flavors, and they're all getting together here next week to argue and discuss with each other these same questions. Now, unfortunately, the alarm that went off now tells me that I have to leave in three minutes for another meeting. And that's why uh, I'm going to see if I can take Steve Ross's question in, in that time remaining. But that's why I suggested that we have another, that we arrange for another follow-up session, uh, perhaps uh, in, uh, uh, in a week or two, something like that. I'll get back to you with that. So anyway, here, uh, I believe I saw Steve here. Steve Ross here? Oops, Steve Ross is not here. Okay. Is Peter here? I, uh, George, I, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, Peter is here. He was just waving. Yep. Oh, Peter is here. Oh, okay, Peter. Um, I'm currently around stage five. Sometimes I drive my car for a couple of hours and I tried to make this time support my practice. My understanding is that one can turn many daily activities into meditation if you can define a, define a scope of attention on the main tasks of the given activity so that you can observe those tasks. Keep your attention there like with senses of breathing at the nose. I tried to do that in my car by observing surroundings of the cars road and cars around me, plus movements of the steering wheel and pedals. I can perform driving mostly automatic on the highway, and this seems safe, but also helping to train my mind similarly when I observe my breath. What do you think of this approach, and is there a better way to support my practice while I'm driving? Um, actually, this is something that I found myself extremely useful to do while driving. And... Uh, it's interesting, in the process of it, you'll discover a lot of interesting things about what you do automatically as you drive that you didn't before. Um, what you most want to do when driving is to have enough of metacognition so that you know what, uh, you, you are aware of what attention is directed towards uh, at the same time that you are peripherally aware of uh, everything else that's going on. Um, so, uh, if you were to, uh, uh, yeah, if, to the degree that you have metacognitive introspective awareness and that you have, uh, so, so that your awareness is going to very quickly draw attention to anything that needs to be attended to, and I think that's probably the case from your description here, uh, then this is a really great practice, uh, for learning to do this in life. When you do it with simpler events like this, then you are able later on to um, uh, to apply this to much 
uh, more challenging and difficult uh, phenomena. To bring this to a more generic level is my approach to turning activity as daily life into a meditation sound. Absolutely. Could you please uh, give an advice on how to approach it in general, how to approach tasks like washing dishes, driving, etc., to support the practice? Well, I think you, you've already given us a really good description of how you would do that with washing dishes, driving, and so on and so forth. And uh, I, I highly, you know, I do very highly endorse that. There is a much more important arena for practicing this kind of mindfulness in daily life, and that is described in the appendix uh, on mindful review. And so I would uh, encourage you to please uh, um, look at that appendix and, and look into applying that in your daily life as well. Now, I really do have to go. I have somebody else waiting for me. <laughs> I thank you all for coming, and you will get an, a notice in the near future of when we will finish up the rest of these questions, at the very least, maybe take a few new ones between now and then as well. So thank you, and I, I wish you the best, uh, the best of days until then. Thank you. Thank you.